Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War, a weekly podcast of myself, your narrator, reading through the chronicles of France, England, Spain, and other adjoining places, providing commentary and reading information from a number of other books pertinent to the subject. In this episode, we're going to be having a look at chapter 7, where we'll continue having a look at Queen Isabella, the Spencer family, and ultimately Edward II, and how they tend to revolve around and be a part of the events that are Edward II's fairly catalytic and crazy life, as they're going to be very important leading into the rest of the story. I know I've gone through that, so I'm not going to belabor the subject. I'm going to get right into it today. So, without further ado, chapter 7, how the Queen of England went and complained her to the King of France, her brother of Hugh Spencer. When Queen Isabel was arrived at Boulogne and her son with her and the Earl of Kent, the captains and abbot of the town came against her and joyously received her and her company into the abbey, and there she abode two days. Then she departed and rode so long by her journeys that she arrived at Paris. Then King Charles, her brother, who was informed of her coming, sent to meet her diverse of the greatest lords of his realm, as the Lord Sir Robert d'Artois and the Lord of Chus the Lord of Sully, the Lord of Roy, and diverse others who honorably did receive her and brought her into the city of Paris to the king her brother. And when the king saw his sister, who he had not seen for a long time, as she should have entered into his chamber, he met her and he took her in his arms and kissed her and said, Ye be welcome, fair sister, with my fair nephew, your son, and took them by the hands and led them forth. The queen, who had no great joy at her heart, but that she was so near the king and her brother, she would have kneeled down two or three times at the feet of the king, but the king would not suffer her, but held her still by the right hand, demanding right sweetly of her estate and business. And she answered him right sagely and lamentably recounted to him all the felonies and injuries done to her by Hugh Spencer, and required him of his aid and comfort. When the noble King Charles had heard his sister's lamentation, who weepingly had showed him all her need and business, for he said to her, Fair sister, appease yourself, for by the faith I owe to God and to St. Dennis, I shall right well purvey you some remedy. The queen then kneeled down, whether the king would or not, and said, My right dear lord and fair brother, I pray God reward you. The king then took her in his arms and led her into another chamber, the which was apparelled for her and the young Edward her son, and so departed from her, and caused at his costs and charges all things to be delivered that was behooveful for her and her son. After, it was not long, but for that occasion, King Charles of France assembled together many great lords and barons of the realm of France to have their counsel and good advice how they should ordain for the next and business of his sister, Queen of England. Then it was counseled to the king that he should let the queen, his sister, to purchase for herself friends, whereas she would in the realm of France or in any other place, and himself to feign and be not known thereof. For they said to move war with the king of England and to bring his own realm into hatred, it were nothing appurtenant nor profitable to him nor his realm. But they concluded that conveniently he might aid her with gold and silver, for that is the metal whereby love is attained both of gentlemen and of poor soldiers. And this counsel and advice accorded the king, and caused this to be showed to the queen privately, 
by Sir Robert d'Artois, who was then one of the greatest lords of all of France. So this was an interesting look at sort of how things can go correctly for people who are good at political expectations. Isabel is well regarded in France for some fairly obvious reasons. She's family with the king, but she's also pretty capable of upholding her duties. Isabel was all of 12 when she was married to Edward and is probably not particularly old at this point. She'd be an adult, but she's not, you know, wise in her elder years or anything like that. She's an adult who is doing what she can to try and sort things out. She's also someone who is defying some conventional tropes of medieval women who faint at sort of tragedy or adversary. She's figured out that things at home have totally broken down. Uh, For a small amount of context that I'll try and get through quickly, Isabel had managed to work with Piers Gaveston in her lifetime and sort of find a middle ground between Piers and Edward and herself where things could move forward in a way that was not ideal but satisfactory. With the spend that's clearly not this case. She's extremely worried. She's fled England and she's come and said, brother, I really, really need your help because like I've just had it. But at the same time, she's someone who's capable of doing that, organizing that, seeing herself and the Earl of Kent out. There's no real part of this book that mentions, you know, someone had to arrange the boats for her or someone had to pay for her or to do this. She's pretty capable of seeing the writing on the wall and then taking action to do something about it. And she's smart enough to realize that she does have options. She's not trapped at home by guards or anything like that. She is definitely someone who clearly has some amount of allies who can help her and participate in making sure that she is able to escape England. And for a little while here, at least, we're going to see a lot more of that kind of action from her as she appears in the story, even though typically women are underrepresented in the Chronicle as a whole. We also saw a brief mention her brother, the King of France, mentioned, Fair sister, appease yourself, for by the faith I owe to God and Saint Denis, I shall pray right well, purvey for you some remedy. So, God and Saint Denis? Saint Denis is the patron saint of France at this time. You're going to hear about him a fair amount. I believe the Abbey of Saint Denis is, at this time, just outside of Paris itself. It holds the Oriflame, which is an important symbol of battle. It's going to turn up in the Hundred Years' War. Uh, You'll hear that St. George is the patron saint of England at this time. That's all coming down the road, though. For the time being, let's try and keep on with what's happening in the story and move on to Chapter 8. How that Sir Hugh Spencer purchased that the Queen Isabel was banished out of France. Now let us speak somewhat of Sir Hugh Spencer. When he saw that he had drawn the King of England so much to his will that he could desire nothing of him but it was granted, he caused many noblemen and other to be put to death without justice or law, because he held them suspect to be against him, and by his pride he did so many marvels that the barons that were left alive in the land could not bear nor suffer it any longer. But they besought and required each other among themselves to be of peaceable accord, and it caused it secretly to be known to the queen, their lady, who had been as then at Paris the space of three year, certifying by her writing that if she could find the means to have any company of men-at-arms, 
any company of men of arms, it were but the number of a thousand, and to bring her son and heir with her to England, that they would all draw to her and obey her son Edward, as they were bound to do of duty. These letters thus sent secretly to her out of England, she showed them to King Charles her brother, who answered her and said, Fair sister, God be your aid, and business shall avail much the better. Take of my men and subjects to the number that your friends have written you for, and I will consent to this voyage. I shall cause to be delivered unto you gold and silver as much as shall suffice you, and in this matter the queen had done so much, what with the prayers, gifts, and promises, that many great lords and young knights were of her accord, as to bring her with great strength again into England. Then the queen, as secretly as she could, she ordained for her voyage, and made her purveyance. But she could not do it so secretly, but Sir Hugh Spencer had knowledge thereof. Then he thought to win and withdraw the king of France from her by great gifts, and so sent secret messages into France with great plenty of gold and silver and rich jewels, and especially to the king and his privy council, and did so much that in short space the king of France and all his privy council were as cold to the queen in her voyage as they had been before great desire to do it. And the king brake all that voyage and defended every person in his realm on pain of banishing the same, that none should be so hardy to go with the queen to bring her again into England. And yet the said Hugh Spencer advised him of more malice, and bethought him how he might get again the queen into England, to be under the king's danger and his. Then he caused the king to write to the Holy Father the Pope effectuously, desiring him that he would send and write to the king of France, that he should send the queen his wife again into England, for he will acquit himself to God and the world, and that it was not his fault that she departed from him, for he would nothing to her but all love and good faith, such as he ought to hold in marriage. Also, there were like letters written to the cardinals, devised by many subtle ways, the which all may not be written here. Also, he sent gold and silver, great plenty, to diverse cardinals and prelates, such as were most nearest and secretest with the Pope, and right sage and able ambassadors were sent on this message. And they led the Pope in such wise, by their gifts and subtle ways, that he wrote to the King of France that on the pain of cursing he should send his sister Isabel into England to the King her husband. These letters were brought to the King of France by the Bishop of Saints, whom the Pope sent in that legation. And when the king had read the letters, he caused them to be showed to the queen his sister, whom he had not seen of long space before, commanding her hastily to avoid his realm, or he would cause her to avoid with shame. Chapter 9. How the Queen Isabel departed from France and entered into the empire. When the queen heard this tidings, she knew not what to say, nor what advice to take, for as then the barons of the realm were withdrawn from her by the commandment of the King of France, and so she had no comfort or succor, but all only of her dear cousin Sir Robert d'Artois, for he secretly did counsel her and comfort her as much as he might, but otherwise he durst not, for the king had defended him. But he knew well that the queen was chased out of England and also out of France, for evil will and by envy, which grieved him greatly. Thus was Sir Robert d'Artois at the queen's commandment, but he durst not speak, nor be known thereof, for he had heard the king say and swear that by whosoever spake to him for the queen his sister, should lose his hands and be banished from the realm. And he knew secretly 
how the king was in mind and will to make his sister to be taken, and Edward her son, and the Earl of Kent, and Sir Roger Mortimer, and put them all in the hands of the king and of Sir Hugh Spencer. Wherefore he came on a night and declared all this to the queen, and advised her of the peril she was in. Then the queen was greatly abashed, and required him all weeping of his good counsel. Then he said, Madam, I consult you that you depart and go into the empire, whereas there may be great many lords who may right well aid you, and especially the Earl Galeman of Hainault, and Sir John of Hainault, his brother. These two are great lords and wise men, true, dried, and redoubted of their enemies. Then the queen caused to be made ready all her purveyance, and paid for everything as secretly as she might. So she and her son, the Earl of Kent, and all her company departed from Paris and rode to Hainault. And so long she rode that she came to Cambrises. And when she knew she was in the empire, she was better assured than she was before, and so passed through Cambrises and entered into Ostravant in Hainault, and lodged in Bougencourt, in a knight's house who was well called Sir de Aubrecourt, who received her right joyously in the best manner to his power, insomuch that afterward the Queen of England and her son had with them into England for ever the knight and his wife and all his children, and advanced them in diverse manners. The coming of the Queen of England and her son and heir into the country of Hinault was anon well known in the house of the good Earl of Hinault, who was then at Valenciennes, and Sir John of Hinault was certified of the time when the Queen arrived at the place of Sir D'Aubrecourt, the which Sir John was brother to the said Earl Gulliman, and as he that was young and lusty, desiring all honour, mounted onto his horse and departed with a small company from Valenciennes, and came the same night to Budgencourt, he did to the Queen all honour and reverence that he could devise. The Queen, who was right sorrowful, began to declare, complaining to him right piteously, her dolores, whereof the said Sir John had great pity, so that the water dashed in his eyes, and he said, Certainly, fair lady, behold me here, you own knight, who shall not fail you to die in the quarrel. I shall do the best of my powers to conduct you and my lord your son, and to bring you into your estates in England, by the grace of God and with the help of your friends in that part, and I and such other that I can desire shall put our lives and goods in adventure for your sake, and shall get men of war sufficient, if God be pleased without the danger of the king of France your brother. Then the queen would have kneeled down for great joy that she had, and for the good will he offered her. But this noble knight took her up quickly in his arms, and said, By the grace of God, the noble queen of England shall not kneel to me, but madame, recomfort yourself and all your company, for I shall keep you faithful promise, and you shall go see the earl my brother, and countess his wife, and the, all their fair children who shall receive you with great joy, for so I heard them report they would do. Then the queen said, Sir, I find in you more love and comfort than in all the world, and for this that ye say and affirm me, I thank you a thousand times. And if ye will do this, ye have promised in all courtesy and honour, I and my son shall be to you for ever bound, and will put all the realm of England in your abandon, for it is right that it so should be. And after these words, when they were thus accorded, Sir John of Hinault took leave of the Queen for that night, and went to Denang and lay in the abbey, for in the morning after mass he left on his horse and came again to the Queen who received him with great joy. By that time she had dined and was ready to mount on her 
horse to depart with him. And so the queen departed from the castle of Bougincourt and took leave of the knight and of the lady and thanked them for their good cheer that they had made her, and she said she trusted once to see the time that she or her son would well remember the courtesy. Thus departed the queen in the company of the said Sir John Lord Beaumont, who righteously did conduct her to Valenciennes, and against her came many of the burgesses of the town, and received her right humbly. Thus she was brought before the Earl of Galeam of Hainault, who received her with great joy, and in likewise so did the Countess his wife, and feasted her right nobly. And as then the Earl had four fair daughters, Margaret, Philippa, Jane, and Isabel, among whom the young Edward set most his love and company on Philippa, and also the young lady in all honour was more conversant with him than any of her sisters. Thus the Queen Isabel abode a Valencians by the space of eight days with the good Earl and with the Countess Jane de Valois. In the meantime, the queen apparelled for all her needs and business, and the said Sir John wrote letters right effectuously unto knights and such companions as he trusted best in all Hainault, in Brabant, and in Bohemia, and prayed them for all their amities that was between them that they would go with him in this enterprise into England. And so there was great plenty, what of one country and the other, that were content to go with him for his love. But this, said Sir John of Hainault, was greatly reproved and counselled, the contrary both of the Earl his brother and of the chief of council of the country, because it seemed to them that the enterprise was right high and perilous, seeking great discords and great hates, that as then was between the barons of England among themselves, and also considering that these Englishmen most commonly have great envy at strangers. Therefore they doubted Sir John of Hainault and his company should not return again with honour, but howsoever they blamed or counselled him, the gentle knight would never change his purpose, but said that he had one death to die, the which was the will of God, and also that all the knights ought to aid to their powers all ladies and damsels chased out of their own countries, being without counsel or comfort. That is a lovely story. A queen lost, forced out by her own brother, is given good advice to go and find this young man who is keen for adventure and commits himself to helping her and her young son and seeks any aid in the surrounding companies or the empire, that being the Holy Roman Empire, of which provinces like Hainault and Brabant are sort of part of. Uh, the places are all individual sort of fiefs or sometimes kingdoms in their own right. For instance, Bohemia is a kingdom in its own right, but are sort of also part of the, the greater empire there. It's also not really true. There's not really a lot of history or historical evidence to back up what happened there. So what what did happen? What's going on in that particular part of the story that, you know, Isabel comes to her brother and he thinks, you know, I'm going to help her out. And then suddenly he decides that he's not going to do that. And she's out on the lamb. And what's, what's going on here? To help me out with this one, I'm returning to the Plantagenets, the Kings Who Made England by Dan Jones. So we're starting in with a description of the main players who are going to launch the invasion of England via France and the Low Countries. 
The leaders of the invasion were Queen Isabella of England, Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, and the heir to the English throne, Edward, who has since our last discussion become Earl of Chester and Duke of Aquitaine. The exiles had finally returned to England, but they did not come in sorrow and humble apology. They came to rid the country of the king and his favourites forever. Queen Isabella and Roger Mortimer made an odd and scandalous couple. They met around Christmas 1325, and within weeks, Isabella had taken Mortimer as her lover. Shortly afterwards, the couple began to live together quite openly, and by May 1326, they had appeared in public as a couple, when Mortimer carried Prince Edward's robes as a coronation of Charles IV's third wife, Jeanne de Evereux, Edward II had heard about his wife's betrayal by February 1326, when he stated angrily, the queen will not come to the king, nor permit his son to return, and the king understands that she is adopting the counsel of the Mortimer, the king's notorious enemy and rebel. Edward put pressure on John XII to censure the French king for harboring an adulterous couple, and Charles, under the threat of excommunication, was obliged to order Isabella and Mortimer to leave France. Mortimer, however, had spent his time on the continent establishing a network of allies, and he found the couple a safe haven in the county of Hainault, where the count was sweetened by the betrothal of young Edward to his daughter Philippa. The support of the Hainaults enabled Isabella and Mortimer to raise their invasion force. The paranoia of Edward II and the dispensers had allowed them to land in safety. England was on a defensive footing, but it was marshaled against the wrong invasion. Edward was convinced that Charles IV was going to invade the south coast from Normandy. He was wrong. Charles had no such intention. So that's a, a very different story that's presented by a historical account versus the chronicle. Chronicle recounts a dramatic story of fleeing in the dark and coming across a lone good noble in Robert d'Artois who is willing to guide Isabel's group to a safe haven of people in Hainault where this young knight falls in love with her cause. Not that, in fact, she took a lover in a time period where adultery was something that could have a woman imprisoned for life. In fact, not only did she knowingly do that, she had been an accuser of a number of women in her lifetime, and those women had died in prison. Let me get a few details on that. I'm not going to go into the fullest extent, so I'm just going to quickly double-check on Wikipedia. Anyone who'd like to know a little bit more about that should look up Tua Desnesle Affair. The Tua Desnesle Affair was a scandal among French royalty in 1314, in which Margaret Blanche and Joan, the daughters-in-law of King Philip IV, were accused of adultery. The accusations were apparently started by Philip's daughter, Isabella. The Tua Desnesle is a tower in Paris where much of the adultery was said to have occurred. The scandal led to torture, executions, and imprisonment for the princess's lovers and the imprisonment of the princesses. Queen Isabella of England first reported the rumours of adultery by her sisters-in-law to her father in Paris. And I believe, in fact, that Blanche and Margaret died in prison. The idea of having been someone so involved and having seen the consequences of adultery decided to very publicly take a man who is not her husband as her lover is a very curious thing. And then it's not that the Sir John of Hainault decides that, you know, he would do anything to revenge 
Isabel upon Edward, and it seems much more likely that the Hnolts, the Lords of Hnolt, decide that they take a political marriage between Edward and Philippa. Edward had been recognized by Charles IV as the Earl of Chester and the Duke of Aquitaine, so even if he totally failed to recapture any lands in England and was somehow supplanted by Edward with a new son or a new heir in some way, he would still have the ability to be a very powerful lord in his own right. Aquitaine on its own was a significant uh, fief to take control of, and he would maintain a claim to the English throne that could be used then to launch further campaigns later on to try and take parts of England or reclaim the English throne, and so certainly it would dramatically grow the prestige of the Lords of Hainault should that marriage go ahead. So they really had very little to lose in that bargain as long as they could keep the bad PR away from their family that seemed to be following Isabella at this point. I'd say that's all we have time for for this week. And next week, we're going to have a look at chapter 10, how the Queen Isabel arrived in England with Sir John of Hainault in her company. We'll have a quick look at the invasion of England by Isabel, the Lords of Hainault and her supporters. And that's going to cover probably chapter 11 and then by chapter 12 we'll be having a look at some of the wrap-up of who is victorious in the war and what are some of the consequences that will go with that whether Edward will win or Isabella will manage to force him to see things her way. It's going to be an interesting section of the story so I look forward to seeing you there. Hopefully you've enjoyed this week's episode and you can join us next time for more Chronicles, The Hundred Years' War.